everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plasemia and Sickle Cell Australia's podcast. I'm your host, Sam, and I'm also the Health Promotion Officer for Tasca. We're up to our second episode today, and today we're joined by Ella, one of our new members from Brisbane, Queensland. Ella's a working mum, taking care of her two lovely boys. So welcome to the podcast, Ella. Why don't you start by telling everyone a bit about yourself? Yes, yeah, so um, my name is Ella, and um, I currently live in Brisbane with my husband and two sons. My oldest son is just turned, had his birthday and turned five. And today, my younger son um, turns seven months. Oh, happy birthday. Yeah. So my oldest son is named Lucas and my youngest son is named Liam. Uh, my husband is Frank and we, um, I am Chinese and my husband's Vietnamese. And um, we both came to Australia when we were quite young. So we've been in Australia for a very long time. Have you always lived in Brisbane? We moved to Melbourne about um, seven years ago. Yeah. And we stayed in Melbourne for a couple of years. But when we had our first son, we thought we'd move back to um, Brisbane where our family and friends were so we could, you know. Um, have the connections. Yeah. Have a connection with their, the grand, the, like the, our parents and the grandchildren. So Ella, as you know, most of our committee members are based in Victoria. You're actually our first member from Queensland. So what made you decide to join the committee? Yes, yeah, so um, last year, uh, my son... Well, we always knew um, my, my my eldest son had um, thalassemia. So he actually has um, HBE beta thalassemia, which mm-hmm. is equivalent to the thalassemia intermediate. And um, he was doing well until he was about um, three years old. And then we sort of got a further um, diagnosed on, you know, uh, that he would, would require blood transfusions. But it wasn't until um, last, early last year that he, um, we saw a decline in his um, health yep. and then we started the blood transfusion. And um, during that process, we found it um, very hard to, you know, get help. Um, there was counselling, um, generic counselling, but we really wanted to find, uh, if, find out if there was other families or other people going through a similar situation so we can have a support group and, you know, people who we can resonate with. And um, it was very difficult to find, um, uh, you know, information and support groups within Brisbane. So I went online and started searching um, on Facebook whether there were um, any support groups. And I did find... Um, three groups. One was in the um, US and one was in Sydney and one was in Victoria. So I thought I might reach out to um, those groups and understand if I could actually, you know, be of any assistance or um, provide our experience so that other people can share their experience and feel supported and not so isolated. And hence why I reached out to um, the Victoria team. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. Hopefully, Tesco will be able to, with your involvement, support a lot more families up north in Queensland. Um, yeah, yeah, because it was very hard to really. Because I think um, it was it was quite a um, you know, a, a traumatic experience yeah. for us as a family, mm-hmm. um, and sort of like you read so much on the internet about the conditions. But, um, you know, there's quite a lot of scary things on the yeah, internet. Yeah, it could be scary, right, if you don't have yeah. information. 
And so we'd rather speak to people and, um, you know, families that actually have gone through the experience and how we can help other families yeah. who could potentially, you know, be going through the experience and just um, have exposure to, to people around Brisbane. Ella, what has been the greatest challenge in your family during this journey with thalassemia? I think when we first sort of like found out that um, my son had the uh, thalassemia condition, we were sort of like advised that, you know, look, he, he, he's growing, he's eating, he's, you know, um, he's hitting all his development milestones. And um, because the, the spectrum for the um, thalassemia intermediate is so broad, they don't really know where he'll lie within that spectrum. So he could, you know, potentially not require any transfusions um, throughout his lifetime, or he may require one or two throughout the year, or he could, you know, um, require every quarter or so forth. So we sort of had a more positive outlook, but when he sort of hit um, three, three and a half, his condition really deteriorated. and. Um, I'm not sure if it was because I thought he was going through terrible twos, which kind of stretched to terrible threes, or was it because I was trying for a second child and, you know, sort of missed all the signs. Um, but, um, you know, having him go through the transfusion was probably the most um, scariest part because I think by the time, you know, Lucas was three and a half, he's very aware of what's, it, what's going on. So, you know, having him, you know, going through the transfusion with the um, the, the cannula getting placed yeah. into his hand and arms where he's screaming and yelling for help and telling us to stop and why is he going through all this, I think that's the most um, hardest part. Well, I can imagine that could be quite scary for someone so young. Because he's quite young and, you know, me and my husband, we, we felt quite helpless. We couldn't help him or take away the pain. Yeah. Um, and then... You know, when we thought we kind of had a rhythm going on for four months where he was, you know, sort of made a connection with, you know, having the treatment and making him feel better, he started wanting the treatment. So we thought we were kind of like, you know, we've already hit rock bottom. And then um, his veins kept collapsing. Remember um, on his, like, I think it was like his fifth transfusion, uh, we tried six different veins on the one day. That's tough. yeah, and all six of the veins collapsed. And his um, hemoglobin level was really low. It was at five points. Um, and we couldn't have the transfusion. So he was so lethargic and, you know, just was not well. So we had to wait a week. And then uh, we had to think about putting a port into his um, upper chest. Um, so he, he had to, you know, undergo that um, surgery to put a port and, um, you know, we just, we're, because we've never, me and my husband, we, we've never had surgeries before. <laughs> so, you know, to us, it just sounds like, you know, very invasive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, him going through, you know, uh, that surgery was, was quite dramatic as well. He was confused. He didn't know what was going on. And, by you know, four, four years old, he was kind of like, you know, quite heavy. Yeah. And he just wanted me to carry him everywhere. <laughs> which made things very difficult. <laughs> but um, now that the port's in, it's been quite um, quite um, easy for him to have the transfusion. So I think we've kind of, um, we're kind of, you know, happy that it's, it, the worst has passed, hopefully. 
Now, all these learnings will hopefully help us with our second child yep. who's also diagnosed with the same um, condition. But we, once again, we don't know um, the degree of the mutation. So mm -hmm. we don't really know where he sits on the spectrum. But then I think it's really helped us understand how we can, you know, help him in the future. Yeah. By the experience we've had with Lucas. Yeah, it sounds like your whole family has gone through a lot. Ella, what would be your advice to young families who might be going through similar situations as what you guys have went through? I think it's really um, the support network you have um, makes a big difference because we, me and my husband basically just search a lot of information online. And once again, it's not probably the best place to read all that information. And the information is very limited as well. The information could also be quite different depending on what country they came from. Yeah, and there wasn't any specific information on like HBE beta thalassemia. There's a lot of information on thalassemia major. And then we read a lot of um, scenarios um, in the US where we found a lot of successful stories. So that gave us a lot of hope on the outlook of the future of our children. Um, you know, people with like even with thalassemia major can go on and be athletes and, you know, do a lot of things that we thought maybe not possible. Yeah, I was reading about a marathon runner with Peter Thalassemia Major who ran the marathon in under five hours. I thought that was amazing. Yes. Well, that's what I mean. I think um, for other family who might be going through the same thing, I think it's very important to, uh, you know, understand that there are success stories and that people or children with um, thalassemia, whether it's like intermediate or major, can still live a, um, a high-functioning life. Yes, definitely. With treatment that's less limits than ever before. Ella, you talked a little bit about the importance of support networks. What kind of support did you have early on? Um, well, we, we pretty much had none here. Yep. Um, we had our, our hematologist who would support us through, um, you know, general um, counselling. Um, but I think it would be better to talk to, like, families that had been through the condition. We just had me and my husband because we mm -hmm. don't know anybody else who has this condition. <laughs> So um, my husband went to, you know, general counselling sessions, but it didn't really resonate with him. But I think it does take time to actually um, sort of understand the condition and uh, move forward with the condition. How about going forwards as the boys are getting older? Do you see any challenges going forward? Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, there, there are difficult decisions that need to be sort of made because when he has those transfusion, he does miss out on currently does miss out on kindy. And because he was born in June as well, and school is from, I think, July to June. So mm. he was due to start prep this year. And him also always going to be the youngest in the class. We decided to uh, hold him back. He did another year of kindy where he still misses out on kindy once a month, a couple of days. Because after he has his in, uh, infusions, we try to keep him home mm -hmm. and just kind of monitor him. So I'm thinking when he starts going school as well, um, depending on where we can, because we try to schedule the treatments on a Friday. Yeah. Uh, so he only miss out on one day of school. But I'm thinking in the future, I mean, we, we may not be able to always have it on the Friday. So I think it's going to impact him on school. Um, before he had the treatment, he, was, he wasn't keeping up with his peers. Um, you know, he wanted to do things. He wanted to be running and, you know, doing all sports with, his peers but and just be a kid right yeah mentally he wanted to but physically he couldn't 
But I think um, now after the treatment, we've seen such a significant change. I honestly don't think if I didn't tell anyone at his school that he has this condition, I don't think they'll be able to pick up that he has the condition. So yeah, so he he's um you know he'll be like any other normal kid. So the only thing is like obviously with the port you can see the port. Okay. <laughs> I mean at school you wouldn't be having your your shirt off anyway. Yeah, unless you're going to go swim. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I, I think um, it, unless he wants to be like a marathon runner or, you know, in the future, I do think that um, it's not going to have a great impact. Yeah. Uh, the only concerns I have for him in the future is obviously the iron overload from all the transfusions and him having to take another set of medication to help and suppress the iron overload. Um, and hopefully he doesn't have any side effects to that. Um but other than that, I do feel that the outlook is quite positive. Let's jump a little bit back to the topic of support. Um, what is your vision for what support will look like in Queensland? Um, so what I'd like to see um, moving forward with, and I know that um, TASCA already has a support group mm-hmm. and there probably isn't as much um, interactions in that support group at the stage. But I would like to see that that support group get utilised a lot more with people, you know, sharing their experiences and just day to day on how they feel and, you know, if there's any tips on helping um, each other through the, their experiences. That's what that's what I've sort of uh, feel that we need more of. Because I've joined a few um, uh, groups through Facebook and I found it uh, very beneficial. Mm-hmm. So you don't feel so alone and isolated and there are actually people that are going through the same thing. And sometimes, you know, what you're feeling, you, you might feel a little bit silly feeling it, but there's probably another hundred or, you know, people feeling the same thing, but nobody's really vocalising <laughs> it. And so I find, you know, those Facebook support groups are really helpful in that in that aspect. And even information sessions, because I know in Melbourne um, it's quite, you guys are quite... Um, uh, like predominant in Melbourne where you know you have like um, information days and and I'd like to see that in Brisbane as well so yep. people are actually more aware of the actual condition because um, when I dropped off Lucas at kindy today one of the teachers actually came up to me to say that uh, you know she when she heard that Lucas had thalassemia she said her mum has that but her mum doesn't require transfusion but she's thinking maybe if she has it because she's always constantly tired um, and, and she just, use, before she usually just put down to, you know, being, being a young mum and, um, you know, having to work, she just thought it was that, but it could be, you know, maybe she is, so she's going to get tested. So I think, you know, just, you know, pe- be, letting people be a more of the condition um, would be beneficial. Yes, yeah, interesting how you mentioned the issue with, um, community awareness for these conditions. What was your experience and challenges kind of explaining this the first time to your family and friends? Yes, and I, you know, I try to find, you know, pictures yeah. that kind of like um, explain how it gets inherited. I think that was the most easiest way to kind of um, explain to family and friends. Um, because I, I, I have thalassemia minor and my brother has it and my sister has it, but none of their kids have thalassemia. So that, yeah, so that worked out quite well for them. Because after we found out our condition, our family and friends also got tested as well um, to 
to see, you know, whether they have it. Because I think um, the the key point is here is if you do have it and you marry someone with um, another thalassemia condition or trait, um, you know, the, the outlook for the children may not be, you know, ideal. And that's why, you know, we use the diagram that we've found on the internet to show that, you know, there's a 25% chance that they could end up with them um, major. And that, and what that looks like is having these um, infusions, um, you know, on a regular basis. Mm. So just like um, even for my younger cousins and cousins, um, you know, to explain that to them, help them, you know, decide, you know, it's going to have a, a, an influence on who they marry in the future. Yeah, but how they go about having decisions about family planning. Yeah, yeah, the more people are aware of it, the more they can, you know, look out for it in the future. How have you guys been coping with the whole COVID restrictions? What's it been like uh, with two young boys at home? I think um, because we've had a year of, you know, this trying, uh, a year of this um, transfusion, we've kind of isolated ourselves anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. so it, it didn't really affect us that much. I mean, when, when um, like, when Lucas is due for transfusion on his fourth week where he's a bit more um, tired and lethargic, we usually don't, go out as much so that he doesn't um, run the risk of um, getting sick. Yep. So we're quite used to being isolated ourselves. Um, so there wasn't, yeah. And because I've just had a newborn, I was in um, confinement. So confinement is like an, a Chinese culture where you just don't go out for, yep. for a month. For a month. So, yeah. yeah. So pretty much um, I normally um, do confinement for six, um, six weeks until the baby, until my baby has their six week injection. So I was in confinement for the beginning of this year anyway. And um, so our family as a whole really didn't really go out. And then when COVID hit, we just kind of continued to stay. <laughs> the only thing that really sort of impacted us was um, the hospital treatments because um, there was restrictions on who can attend. And normally I, I've, I've attended every, um, every transfusion. Um, even when my newborn was born, I mean, I, I did do confinement, but I did go out for Lucas's transfusion at um, two weeks after I gave birth. Um, and I just want to be there to support him because um, he, 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 he's requested I support him through every um, trans, transfusion. Um, but with the visitors restrictions where you can't have more than one support person or have minors there, uh, which meant that I couldn't really attend every appointment. So his, his dad had to go with him, which um, he wasn't too happy at the beginning, but I think it's just something he needs to get used to and be resilient about. Yep. And so like that was kind of hard at first, but um, he, he's, he's, he, he understands that I can't always be there. Because uh, even having the newborn, I didn't change Lucas's routine because I, I still wanted to keep his routine um, simply because I don't want him to feel like there's going to be um, lots of changes because of another baby. No. So I've kind of maintained his routine, but it, it actually worked out, um, you know, helped build his resilience that I can't always be there. So um worked out well. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's great. Okay, and one last thing before we leave. And this could be a bit out of date by the time the podcast comes out, but um, Tesco is planning to light up a few public places um, for World Sickle Cell Day to raise awareness. Brisbane Story Bridge is getting lit up. 
Are you guys planning on having a look at the whole light up? Yeah, so we were, we were planning to do a drive-by and just take some pictures uh, during the night. And I think it'd be just a nice drive and just kind of explain um, to Lucas what it, what it is about and that, um, you know, it's just not him that has the treatment. There are other people and other kids out there that have these, this inherited disease. So I think it's a good segue to, um, you know, explain um, the condition to him as well. Yeah, that they're not alone. There's other others out there going through the same thing. That's really yeah, cool. That's really cool message. Because like, um, because we go to a private hospital, he doesn't actually see any other kids going through the treatment. It's just him. Yeah. Um, even when we were at the um the Mara, where it's a public facility, um, there was nobody other um kid going through it. So um, he has asked a few questions: why he's here and why does he have to do this? And he doesn't um, really understand. Um, is he the only one that's going through this treatment? And we've, we've had to explain to him that there are other kids out there, but just not in Brisbane that we know of. So I think by showing him that, um, you know, the bridge is lit up for this condition, helps him understand that there are people out there and it is people are aware of the condition as well. It's really interesting, yeah. Having that extra perspective of, um, yeah, other people going through the same situation. And I think the kids, because and that's what I've learned as well, like kids... Um, Kids see things at a very logical perspective. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, my kids do anyway. And they'll ask because they, I think they're so innocent. They just ask these questions that we wouldn't have thought about because I initially went, um, went to a private hospital because I thought, um, you know, he'd be in the comfort of, you know, his own room and um, he'll have his own space. But um, when we had to put his port in, it was... Um, it wasn't through the private hospital. It was through another hospital and they didn't have private for the transfusions because straight after he had the port, we did a transfusion straight after. So he had to do that in a public system. And I found that that's when he raised the question, you know, like because he was like surrounded by other children, but other children were getting treated for different things like dialysis and so forth. But it helped him understand that other kids do go through treatment, but different kind of treatment. And I think that gives him a level of comfort um, that he doesn't feel isolated. Almost a sort of like peer support. Yeah. So which was completely different direction to where I was thinking. So we're thinking like, you know, moving forward um, in the future when he does get a little bit older is go to the public system so he can, you know, um, interact with other people there as well. Sometimes you think that, you know, private means better. You get, you know, better treatment. There's other aspects to think about. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Awesome. Thank you, Ella. Thank you for your perspective and all the things you shared with us today. Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to um, get more families together in Queensland so that they can support each other. Um, yeah, that'll be great, Sam. Thanks, Ella. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And uh, Once again, I'm Sam from the SEMA Sickle Cell Australia, and I've been joined today by Ella Luong, our latest TASCA committee member from Brisbane, Queensland. So until next time, goodbye and stay well, everyone.